That's right. Genesis 43, uh, 42, sorry, is where we'll be today. If you, uh, if you, several years ago, I kind of got tired of music. I stopped listening to it. Um, it just kind of got old. Uh, and so I found that first song is by a group named Sovereign Grace, and they have tons of theologically rich songs, if you're interested in that. And the second one is Shane and Shane, if you've heard of them. Uh, they've got some stuff right now that's pretty neat. They've redone a bunch of hymns, like In Christ Alone. Um, and then they also have started putting some psalms to song um, and, and sing those. So if you're interested, those are there. Genesis 42 is where we'll be uh, to set the context for you. We have been walking through this book of the Bible for nearly two years. Uh, I got a time hop last Sunday that said last year I was doing the Tower of Babel last Sunday. And then this last last Sunday we were on uh, Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. And so there's a lot in Genesis. Um, and, and it's been a good book for me. I hope it's been a good book for you. Um, but we're not done yet. Uh, there's still some really interesting things that happen. And if you break it up by character, more time is devoted in Genesis to Joseph than to anybody else. He starts and has nearly 10 chapters. That's a fifth, one-fifth of the book of Genesis. And so uh, what we've seen so far in Joseph's life, his father is Jacob, and he's Jacob's favorite son because he's the oldest son of Rachel, who is Jacob's favorite wife. Rachel's now deceased, and Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers because of a jealous hatred that they had for him. And so Joseph's life has just been this consistent cycle of God taking bad circumstances and bad things that happened to him and then raising him up above those circumstances that are happening in his life. Everything that's under Joseph's control thrives in the story of Genesis. And so in the last passage, we saw that God moved Joseph from being a prisoner to being second in command of all the nation of Egypt. And again, anything that Joseph is over thrives. So God gives Pharaoh two dreams, which Joseph interprets. And the meaning is there's seven years of abundant harvest, followed by seven years of an extreme famine. And so then Joseph applies those dreams that he interpreted to mean, uh, to be applied as, we need to store up a bunch of food during the seven years of abundance so that during the seven years of famine, we'll have enough to survive. And then we see Joseph's life is going well. He has kids. He seems happy. He's kind of settled into this role that he's in. He's the one who distributes all the food. Nobody except for Pharaoh is greater than Joseph in all of Egypt. But then what we will see and what we heard just kind of at the end that kind of peaks us, uh, end of verse 41 or chapter 41, is that this famine isn't just in Egypt. It's across the entire world. And so Joseph is going to be forced to face his estranged family because Egypt is the only place with bread. And that's where we pick up in verse 42. So let me pray, and then we will walk through this passage like we always do. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we do get to gather together. Um, God, I'm, I'm grateful for those that are here. It's no accident, it's no coincidence, God, that you have us here for your word and for your proclamation. And so I pray that you would speak through your word, that it would hit our hearts, that it would give us encouragement where we need encouragement, it would give us conviction where we need conviction, and that it would grow us in you and in your gospel. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Genesis 42, 
Verse 1, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain there for us that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So we open up the story, and we see that Jacob gets wind that there's grain being sold in Egypt. Remember, this is a a famine that's happening everywhere, and they don't have Walmart. There's no global supply chain for them to, to worry about to keep them stocked. So this normally doesn't happen to us. But here lately, this feels a little bit more real than maybe in years past. In years past, we could remember the big bluebell crisis that happened when bluebell got a disease and we had to eat that blue bunny nonsense. Or maybe you remember toilet paper when it was a luxury at the beginning of, of COVID. But most recently, and, and, and probably the most like this story that we can relate to, is the baby formula shortage. But for reality of us in our modern day, we don't typically have food shortages like they were facing here. This is a very real and extremely lethal and dangerous thing that's happening to them. And Jacob knows this. He understands how dire the situation is. He understands that he has to find food for his family or all of his family, this group that he has, is going to die. So it's really very real, very pressing. And so Jacob looks at his sons who are just apparently sitting around and he says, make yourself useful. Go buy some grain in Egypt. And Jacob sends 10 of his 11 sons that he knows are alive. He keeps Benjamin back. The text tells us that all Benjamins are the most handsome and that's why he does so. I'm just kidding says that Benjamin's now his favorite because he's also the son of Rachel, who is his favorite wife, who is now deceased. So those ten other sons besides Benjamin wander down to Egypt to buy grain to keep the people alive. What we know is the famine will last seven years. The Egyptians know that the famine will last seven years thanks to Joseph, or more correctly, thanks to Joseph's God. And so Egypt has prepared for this famine, but for Jacob and his family, they're not privy to this information. So when the brothers come down to buy grain, they're not buying grain for seven years. They're just buying grain to get them down the road a little ways. Seven years is a long time. So for them, in their minds, this famine could end any time. Once they get a good, you know, rain... It won't go on forever. And so it's this balance of, do we pay this inflated price for grain? Like, how do we do this? And so they end up going down to Egypt. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. 
and Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he had said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. We are honest men, and your servant has never been spies. And he said to them, No, it's the nakedness of the land that you seek to come, that you come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest this day is with our father, and is, uh, one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I have said, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you to let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether... There is truth in you or else. By the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So we're we're reminded at the beginning that Joseph is the governor, that he's the second in Egypt, that he's the one who's distributing all of this food, that it was his plan. He interpreted Pharaoh's dream correctly, and because he interpreted it correctly, and because he applied it well, Egypt is now becoming a very wealthy country while everybody else is getting poorer and poorer. And they're wealthy because of Joseph's leadership. Now, we know Joseph is second in charge, which means Joseph probably is not the one sitting at the table wheeling and dealing over grain. But Joseph probably has been paying attention to who has been coming to buy grain and recognizes that there's people from the land of Canaan that have been coming. So when he sees ten brothers, we're told twice that Joseph recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. Think about it. This has been 20 years since Joseph was thrown into that pit. Joseph was 17 with a patchy beard. No, shady mustache. Now he's 37, clothed in Egyptian robes, clothed in Egyptian garments. He has his hair styled the way Egyptians would style their hair. All those sorts of things that happened to Joseph. And the text tells us something incredible. They bow to Joseph. If you remember his dreams that he had when he was thrown in the pit, both of his dreams said that his brothers would bow to him, and that's a part of the reason that fueled their jealous hatred of Joseph that put him in the pit in the first place. And now we see that coming true. His dream is is partially true, right? Jacob is still back in Canaan. Benjamin is still back in, in Canaan. And so Joseph responds to his brothers in a way that's kind of odd if, if we just step back and look at it. He doesn't treat them like brothers. He doesn't even tell them who he is. He just says he treats them like strangers and he deals roughly with them. Why? Is Joseph seeking revenge? Is he messing with them like the younger brother would do? Is he angry? What is going on? Honestly, the text isn't super clear on what is going through Joseph's minds and what emotions he's feeling at this moment. It'll be clarified in a few verses what's going on, but right now Joseph's emotions and thoughts are kept to himself. But what we do see Joseph doing is he's being smart and he's being wise. The last time Joseph saw his brothers, they were sinfully seeking to kill him and they compromised by selling him into slavery. 
Joseph was a tattletale that irritated his brothers. Jacob favored Joseph over their sons. It was this mess of sin that was happening the last time that Joseph saw them. We know because we've traced Joseph's life and followed his life that over the last 20 years, the Lord has matured Joseph greatly. But what about his brothers? Have they grown in Christ? Have they matured? See, in life sometimes we get reconciliation and forgiveness confused. They're not the same thing. We can forgive someone and never be reconciled to them. There are people, and I'm sure you can think of some in your own life, who for whatever reason have hurt you, who have wounded you, who have caused you not to trust them. And the reality of the gospel, if we are Christians, is that at some point we must forgive them, no matter how harsh or cruel that they treated us. But that doesn't mean it's a two-way street. For instance, if someone steals money for you, forgiveness isn't handing them your wallet. Forgiveness is not harboring bitterness towards them. It's wanting what is best for them, while at the same time still being wise and discerning with how that relationship looks. But forgiveness for the Christian is not an option. Think about Jesus and think about the gospel. We claim with our words that Jesus died in my place, that he paid my wrath that I deserve, that he died my death, and that he gave me his righteousness. So then how does this impact the rest of my life? What did Jesus do to deserve death? Nothing. But he took it so that I can be saved, that I can be free. So if we claim that this is the gospel and that this saved us, yet we harbor unforgiveness, uh, we, we harbor uh, bitterness, we harbor anger, we're unforgiving of others, what we're saying with our actions is that the gospel is enough for me, but it's not enough for you. That Jesus forgives me of my sins, but I could never forgive you of yours. Again, forgiveness doesn't mean, rec- like, doesn't mean reconciling. I've shared this before. I was engaged to a girl in college before I met Morgan, and she cheated on me with a fry cook from Chili's. True. There's a lot of pain there. It was. There was a lot of hurt there. But over time, I've come to forgive her, and honestly, I'm grateful for what happened. Without that incident, there's no Morgan in my life. I don't have Addie. I don't have Bryn. I don't have Cannon. And I certainly would not know how delicious Applebee's is. But it would be foolish and it would be unwise for me to seek to reconcile that relationship. I harbor no hurt feelings towards her, but at the same time, I'm not going to seek her out. It's not easy, and I don't want to sound like I make right decisions all of the time on these things. It took me a long time to get to that place. But by the grace of God, forgiveness received is forgiveness that flows from the Christian. I had a pastor growing up who would always say, I can't hold much, but I can overflow a lot. So that grace that's received from Jesus Christ, that forgiveness that's received through faith in Jesus Christ is not meant for you and I to bottle up and to distribute as we see fit. It's meant to flow through us. It's meant to be received by grace through faith to fundamentally change who we are on the inside, how we see the world. So then grace received is grace given. And forgiveness received is forgiveness given. It flows from us.
And so what we see Joseph doing here is trying to figure out what his relationship with his family will be like. Is this a relationship? We've already seen that he's forgiven his family. He names his kids this, basically. He names his kids, God has forgotten, uh, God made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house, and God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So we know he's forgiven his family, but this is an opportunity for reconciliation, but reconciliation always takes two parties. And so what Joseph's trying to do is to figure out where his brothers are at. If this is a relationship that can be reconciled, or if it's a relationship that they just need to mutually depart and go their separate ways. And so Joseph devises a brilliant plan to test if his brothers are grown. It starts with Joseph intentionally not letting his brothers know who he is. We'll learn in a few passages, in a few verses, but Joseph uses an interpreter to talk to his brothers. So they don't even think he can speak English, I mean Hebrew. And so Joseph then accuses them of being spies three times. He says, you're not here for food. You're here to look around and see where Egypt is weak so that you can attack. And they deny it. And he's like, no, no. And, and the way they deny it is so funny. They say, we're honest men. This is Joseph they're talking to, the brother whom they sold into slavery instead of killing. And then if you remember the story, this is a 20-year lie that they've been telling their father. They take the multicolored coat, they dip it in blood, and they tell dad, they tell Jacob, hey, he's, he's dead. Not to mention two of the brothers, Simeon and Levi, murdered an entire village to get vengeance, to rage against their sister who was defiled. Also not to mention Judah, who tolerated sin and eventually impregnated Tamar, his son's widow, because of his sin. Honest is not how we would describe these men. But that's their plea. And so Joseph, again, you're not here to just get grain you are spies and like we're not spies there's there's 12 of us brothers 10 of us are here one is gone they assume joseph's dead at this point and one is with our father so immediately without joseph revealing who he is what he learns is jacob's still alive but he keeps pressing he says well here's the test then if you've got one back home if you're telling me the truth then everybody stay here except for one of you and go get the brother and bring him back And then we'll know if you're telling the truth or not. And then instead of letting them do that, Joseph puts all of them in custody for three days. Verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. Now, therefore, there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them. 
for there was an interpreter between them. And he turned away from them and wept. And when he returned to them, he spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give him uh, them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. Then they loaded up their donkeys with their grain and departed. So three days, they're left in the prison. And Joseph comes back, and now Joseph changes the test. And he does it so smart. He's trying to figure out if their hearts are changed, if they've grown from where they were at. And so Joseph sets up a scenario that's oddly similar to the scenario he went through. One brother is going to stay in prison, what he has called a pit throughout the story of Genesis, while the other brothers are going to leave. And if they come back for the one brother, Joseph knows that they've changed because they didn't come back for him. And it's Simeon. I don't, they don't tell us why Simeon's the one. They just say, Simeon drew the short straw. But I'm sure Joseph was watching when he said this. It's like, are they trying to not stay? Because they're like, I'm not staying because I know you guys aren't going to come back. That would be revealing of their character too. And then the brothers turn and start talking Hebrew to each other, but they don't think Joseph can understand them. I have a friend who uh, is a coach. And when he was first a coach in Spearman, um, his last name is Castellan. His whole family speaks Spanish except for David but they didn't tell the players on the football team this. And for two years, they never cussed in Spanish because they thought David could understand them. And the brothers turn to each other and start talking Hebrew because they don't think Joseph understands them. And it's in this moment that we can begin to see how the Lord has been working in their hearts. They show remorse over what they did to Joseph they recognize like this that everything that's happening is very similar to what they did to Joseph. I mean, they tell us that Joseph begged. We're not told that until this point that Joseph begged them to stop and they didn't listen. And then Reuben does what bad leaders do. Told you so. I said not to sin against the boy, but you didn't listen to old Reuben, did you? And now here we are. And so Joseph hears all of this and he gets emotional. They don't know he can understand them because Joseph only talks to them through the interpreter. So he, he turns away, goes to a different room and just begins weeping because all of his life is just flipped upside down. His life was flipped upside down by these very people. These brothers are the ones that threw him in the pit and sold him to slavery. And now they've admitted that they were wrong and they're repentant and remorseful of it. So Joseph collects himself, he grabs Simeon, he bounds Simeon in front of all of them, then he hands them the bags of grain, and he sends them on their way. And unknown to the brothers, Joseph has taken the grain, filled everything up, and then placed the money that they were supposed to buy the grain with back into the bags. Again, he's going to find out if they've been changed by the Lord. One of the reasons they sold Joseph into slavery was to get money. Not much, but some. And so now Joseph has one brother in custody. He sent the others with plenty of money and plenty of grain to supply them for a long time. If they leave Simeon in prison, then they haven't changed. And so we have to ask the question, well, what would they do? 
And the text tells us they load up their donkeys and they leave. Verse 27. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw that his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back here. It is in the mouth of my sack. And their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another. What is this that God has done to us? And when they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies in the land. And we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve sons of our father. One is no more. The youngest this day is with our father in the land of Canaan. And then the man said to the Lord of the land, and uh, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take the grain from the famine of your households and go your way and bring your youngest brother to me and then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. And they emptied their sacks. And behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they turned to their father, they saw their bundles of money, and they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? All of this has come against me. And then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you, but put him him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. And he said, My son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. And if harm should fall to him on the journey that you are to make, then you shall bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So we see Joseph does something clever. He's providing for his family while his family doesn't know it. He's sending nine of the ten brothers back. They're going to carry a lot more grain than one person is. And the Bible tells us that they get to an allsup's and they stop to get gas and a burrito. We're not told which brother opens his bag, but one of the brothers opens his bag to feed the donkeys, and what he sees is his money that he was supposed to pay for. The ESV tells us that their hearts failed them. Some other translations will say their hearts sank or they lost heart. They've been claiming to be honest. That's been their plea. We are honest men. And now they're looking at their bag, and it looks a lot like they stole this grain. And they know that at some point Egypt is going to start counting all of the the grain that they gave out. And they're going to be able to pinpoint and say those brothers that came stole the grain. They didn't pay for it. But the reality is these honest men can't even go back to Egypt. Because if they come back without Benjamin, then this Joseph guy that they don't know is Joseph, they're going to assume is going to kill them or imprison them or something. They are petrified to the point that they look at each other and start shaking in fear. And their response is, what is it that God is doing to us? Which is an important point for us to see. They recognize that all of this is from the Lord. And so they get to Jacob and they tell Jacob everything that happened. And Jacob acts like Jacob. They tell him the story. They share why Simeon isn't with them. They dump their sacks and they learn it's not just one person's money, but all of the money that they had is still with them. And to top that off, to get Simeon back, they have to go continue trading with Egypt, which means they have to take Benjamin, the beloved son, back to Egypt. And so Jacob's reply is telling of Jacob's heart. I've made it known, not a fan of Jacob. He says, you have bereaved me, or you've deprived, you've robbed me of my children. Not 
their brothers, but his children. He says, Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. It's the same wording that Jacob uses with Joseph. And remember, there's this 20-year lie with Jacob. So Jacob thinks that Joseph was killed by an animal. And so he, he says they're no more. He means they're dead. And he says, and now you want Benjamin? Reuben displays poor leadership again. He says, listen, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back with you. In Reuben's mind, this is an assurance of how confident he is that he can bring Benjamin back. But to Jacob and probably Reuben's sons, what he's saying is, I can take care of him. And if I don't take care of him, then you can kill the kids that I'm supposed to take care of. And so Jacob responds very clearly. Benjamin is not going with you. And Jacob is mean in what he says. It reveals a lot about how he views his kids. He says he's the only one left. To his other sons. He's the only son of Rachel I have left. By saying it this way, what he's saying is, none of you count to be as much of my son as Benjamin is. Benjamin is more important than Simeon. And then basically Jacob says, if Benjamin dies, then I will go down to Sheol. We get this confused sometimes. Sheol is a word that means place of the dead. It does not reference hell. It references death. And so Jacob is saying, I will, he's not saying I'll go to hell if Benjamin dies or if he's hurt. What he's saying is that if Benjamin dies or Benjamin is hurt, then I'm going to die. I can't handle it. Sometimes with, with texts like this, when we get to the Bible, applications to sermons are very easy. And a lot of times the gospel is easy for us to understand in our brains and even to feel it in our hearts. But when it comes to living out the gospel, it's a completely different story. When our application is stop lying or love Jesus more or whatever, we can give a resounding amen and then we walk out the door, we get to Whataburger so we can enjoy the rest of our Sunday. We feel conviction to love Jesus better, maybe to stop cussing as much, uh, maybe to stop lying as much, but there's no real life change that takes place. What this passage is calling us to do is something far different and far more difficult. This passage is calling you and I to forgive those in our life who have hurt us the worst and have wronged us the most. It's calling us to forgive those in life that we hope to never talk to again. It's calling us to forgive those in life that we avoid in Walmart. Because the reality is their offense against us, no matter how horrific or terrible it may be, pales in comparison to our offense against God. And maybe you're thinking, Ben, you don't know what they did to me. I could never forgive them. But brother, sister, listen. You are right that I don't know what they did to you. But ultimately, I know who we have sinned against. And all of our sin is against the Lord. And if you think that we can sin against God but not forgive those who sin against us, then what we don't have is the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is perfect. He's the owner of absolutely everything. The oxygen that you and I breathe is God's. 
and he is good and he is just and our sin is against him and in our sin when we sin what we're saying is that my way is better than the omniscient omnipotent omnipresent god of the bible what we're saying when we sin is i don't need god i am god lowercase g When we sin, what we're saying is, I want to be the king or I want to be the queen of my life. And by the grace of God, when we ought to have been squished or tortured for our attempted rebellion, God looks at us and not by merit, by no value, by no worth, by nothing earned, nothing deserved in us or for us or by us, God comes to us to reconcile us to him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So when Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment not from man, uh, man but for, from God for our sin. And he not only forgives us, he makes a way for us to be in a right relationship with God. He reconciles us to himself. And if that is the gospel, if that is the good news, then the gospel, then then what gospel are we showing? What gospel are we actually believing if we harbor bitterness in our unforgiving people? If we're cold, if we're unforgiving, then the God we worship is not Jesus Christ of the Bible. I'm not saying this means you need to reconcile so that you're buddy-buddy with the person who hurt you or harmed you, but I'm saying that you pray to Jesus and you leave the anger and the bitterness and the hatred with him. We're told to love our enemies. Love means you want what is best for somebody else. You don't accept them for sinning and doing wrong. You want what is best for them, and what is best for your enemies is Jesus. And so maybe the prayer for you looks like this. Father, help me to forgive like you forgave me. Or maybe you're at the other end. You're, you're not the one who wounded, or you're not the wounded one, but you're the one who's wounded someone. There's forgiveness in Christ for you too. Repent, turn to Jesus, lean into the gospel, pray for the people, the person that you wounded. I had to do this this morning. Man, I snapped at Bryn last night. And I went in to talk to her, and she was asleep. (laughs) But praise God, she came into my workspace this morning, and I was able to give her a hug and apologize and tell her that I'm sorry, and she forgave me. See, one of the most incredible powers of the gospel is when we realize that the good news of Jesus means that you and I can own that we're not perfect. that our perfection isn't what saves us. It's Christ's perfection that saves us. And so we can repent to the people that we've wronged. We can seek forgiveness. And even if they don't forgive us, Jesus does. Or maybe you recognize that there is a relationship that needs to be reconciled. And it's wounded and it's hurt and it's strained. But the gospel of Jesus is big enough to save messed up people like you and I. And it's big enough to fix our relationships too. Whatever is happening, may we respond to Jesus. I mean, maybe the relationship that you need to reconcile is the relationship between you and the Lord. The good news is there's grace and mercy in Jesus, and Jesus hasn't moved. Jesus hasn't wronged you. 
It's a one-way street with the Lord. Repent, turn to Jesus, lean into the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for passages like Genesis 42. Where we can look at Joseph, we can see what Joseph's doing, where there's forgiveness for his family, but he's cautious and wise to reconcile that relationship. And then, God, we can be reminded that Joseph is but a mere shadow of Jesus. That he's pointing us to a better Savior. He's pointing us to one who does the work for us. God, I pray that you would help our hearts to be filled with grace and mercy, that we would be filled with forgiveness from you, and that we would overflow that grace, that mercy, and forgiveness to everyone else around us. pray that your gospel would grow our hearts in you this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.